Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Uh, we are actually in the middle of a sermon series called Isaiah. And since Pastor Marshall called me on Friday and said I was preaching today, there was no way I was going to be able to prep five chapters of Isaiah in 48 hours. So uh, when he gets back, he will pick up where he left off in the uh, book of Isaiah. Again, I said today we're going to be in uh, Luke. Now I've titled this sermon, From Death to Life. So if you're an ex-emo kid, you're probably going to like this sermon because we're going to talk about death and sad stuff. No, I'm I'm kidding. Um, What what I'm going to do today is I want to explore the idea, the thought, the process of the idea of death and resurrection as it pertains to the Christian life. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, and what I want to do is just set us up a little bit for this discussion. Um, In Luke chapter 9, Jesus has started his ministry He's not even halfway through at this point. And over just the last five chapters, the first couple chapters of Luke is the birth story. Um, And starting around chapter four, we get um, things like uh, Jesus being tempted by the devil in chapter four. Uh, We get Jesus healing a man with a demon. He's cleansed a leper. He's healed a paralytic man. He's challenged the Pharisees to the way they look at the law and how they're handling things. Uh, He's called his disciples, all 12 of them. He's healed a man that has a withered hand. He's healed the centurion's son. He's raised the widow's child from the dead. He's calmed the storm. He's fed 5,000, and he's had one of the, if not the greatest sermon ever preached in the Sermon on the Mount. In just a short five chapters, Jesus is doing some things. But up until this point, it's kind of an interesting thing. If you go back, and I do encourage you to go back and read those five chapters. Everything up until this point in Jesus' ministry has been pretty positive and upbeat. There was no real negative to the disciples following Jesus. Um, Their lives haven't been threatened yet. John the Baptist has been put to death. He has been beheaded. So that's kind of like the biggest thing that's happened so far. But for Jesus... And his disciples, they had not been persecuted. So this is almost like the honeymoon stage, the first five, these, these five chapters. And I can just see the disciples thinking like, this is why we left our nets. This is why we put everything down to follow Jesus. We left our families, we left our careers, we left our responsibilities, some of them as the oldest sons. We left everything behind to follow Jesus, and this is the guy, look what he's doing. Look at all these miracles he's performing. Like, this is it, we've been waiting for it. But midway through this chapter, even chapter 9, Jesus' tone just abruptly shifts. In verse 22, there's this discussion between disciples and Jesus, and he asks them, who do they say that I am? And they list off a bunch of different people. That's not the Messiah. And Peter says, you're the Christ of God. And in this gospel, in other gospels, Jesus talks to Peter in a different way. But in this gospel, this is his response. He says in verse 22, he, he then strictly charged and commanded them not to tell no one, anyone what they were saying. And he says this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests 
and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, he must rise again. I can just see the disciples' faces. They're like, yes, yes, wait, what? Death? You're gonna have to be what? I was with you with the miracles, Jesus. I was with you with the feeding of the 5,000. I was with you with the calming of the storm. That was pretty cool. You told the storm to cease and it stopped. Never seen that before. I was with you when you raised the child from the dead. That was pretty incredible. I'm here for all of that, but this death thing? Mm Mm-mm, not here for that. We're supposed to be together for the next 30 years, Jesus, and you're saying that you're gonna have to be, die, and then you're gonna raise from the dead? What, What is this thing? So this brings us to where we are in Luke chapter nine, because Jesus doesn't stop there. He picks up and he goes, oh, there's more. So we're gonna be in uh, verse 23, we're gonna read through 27. This is a very popular set of scripture. Um, It's the take up your cross and follow me section of scripture. So verse 23, and he said to all, now that word all is interesting because there's a real problem that we have is that one of the it's a, benefit, it's a very beneficial thing to the church because we're able to do things like preach from very specific parts of scripture with chapters and verses, but it really breaks up the way that the original writers would have been, you know, point as like the story. When we have a verse that breaks up in a title and we think that these are different parts of the same narrative and it's not. So when he says, and he said to all, most likely at the end of verse 22, he was talking specifically to the disciples, but then he turned because Jesus had many, many, many people following him. So this statement isn't just to the disciples. This is everybody in that region who have been following Jesus for however much time. He says this to them. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So for just a moment, for a second, you put yourself in their shoes. Nothing up into this section of scripture prepared them to hear the words, pick up your cross and follow me. Now they would have understood what the cross meant because for 600 years, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans had been crucifying people. Romans did not invent crucifixion. So they would have had a good concept of the cross. They would have watched, most likely, as people who had rebelled against Rome had been crucified in the streets. This was not a thing that they would have been lost on them. What they would have been thinking, though, is why do I have to pick up a cross? Right? Because they wouldn't have had the image that we have, the foresight that we have to look backwards through scripture and see that word cross and think of it through the lens of Jesus and his cross. They wouldn't have been thinking of Simon the Cyrene picking up Jesus's cross in the street and carrying it for him. They wouldn't have had that. We had that benefit. So they were probably thinking, wait a minute, what cross am I picking up 
And what about myself am I going to have to deny? Because didn't I already do that, Jesus? Didn't I already leave my family for you? I left everything for you. I sacrificed everything to do this. And now you're telling me that I have to give up more? I have to pick up a cross? I have to deny myself? So this got me thinking just a little bit. Hold on. Sacrifice. Is, is them giving up their lives a certain amount of sacrifice? Yeah, it's sacrifice. Denial? Maybe a little bit, but it wasn't death. It wasn't a cross that they had to carry. They just put some things to the side for a moment. And this got me thinking about my own salvation experience. Um, I got saved at 18, and my parents can attest to this if they sit in front of this, that I was a pretty angry kid for really no reason. I was, a, I was picked on in middle school and high school. I was kind of overweight when I was younger, and that really got into my psyche, and it really affected my identity and how I saw myself. But I was a super angry kid, very frustrated, and I really enjoyed vandalism. Any TPD officers here? That's like a, there's like a statute of limitations, right, um, on this. Uh, I really like breaking the law and getting away with it. And I don't mean the mall of Loses. I mean literally like the law. I like stealing things, breaking into people's homes. Um, just, it, I was an idiot, basically. But I, I enjoyed these things. I, I dibble-dabbled in drugs and alcohol and stuff. My real, I really enjoyed lying, stealing, and getting away with it. See? Just ask my parents. They, have, they can tell you plenty of stories. But this thing happened. After I was saved at 18, Almost immediately, I became this dancing man for the Lord. All you had to do was put on Daryl Evans. For those who grew up in the late 90s and 2000s, you get that reference. All you had to do was put Daryl Evans on, and I was lost for hours. But I can tell you right now, while there was a lot of freedom in those early days, there was very little death. Because just a short 10 years later, I almost lost everything because of sin in my life. I'm not going to get into the details of what that thing is. You can go back to Red Hill Stories episode. I can't remember what it was. Season one, you can hear about that. But I almost lost everything. Because we like to think that giving up sin is death. That's the death that Jesus was talking about. I just simply stopped sinning. Because repenting is turning away from sin. I get that part, right? The turning away of certain sins, yes, it is a sacrifice, but it isn't death. If simply not committing sin was death, then why do we need Jesus? And if, it was, if not sinning was death, then why do we return to the same sins over and over and over again? Like as Jesus said, a dog who returns to his own vomit which is an interesting analogy, but it's not mine. Again, if we could just willpower our way through not sinning, why do we need Jesus? Because anybody can do that. Even atheists do that. Even atheists know that they should stop doing stupid things. That's not special. Look, I can delete. I can go right now to my, at home or my phone. I can delete Chrome. I can delete Safari and go home and disconnect the Wi-Fi so I can no longer go to websites that show naked women. I can do that. 
I could get all the accountability partners in the world, but does it fix anything? No, it just stops me from doing the thing that I really want to do deep, 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 deep inside. So sin is like water. If you've got a leak in your roof, even the smallest little leak, it's going to find a way in, and it's going to rot from the inside out. So, you may be asking, look, if, if repentance isn't death, if turning away from sin isn't death, then what does death look like? Well, I can attest in my own life, the way that I approached death, one that started with just asking some questions about who I was. It was looking in the spiritual mirror and saying things like, now I'm going to list a bunch of stuff, not all these apply to me, but this is like examples. Why am I so angry? Every single time something comes up in my life, I lose my ever-loving bleep. Father, help me. I don't want to be this way anymore. It could be death could look like this. I was abused as a child, and now I abuse others. Father God, help me, break me. I'm addicted to pornography because secretly inside my heart, I want to be in those types of relationships. I want to be with women like that or guys like that. That's what I really, really want. God, cleanse me of my sin, of my iniquity. It's admitting deep inside that you're actually attracted to the opposite sex and you have no idea how to handle that. Death looks like us laying at the feet of the cross. Our wants, our desires, the things that we hold so close to us, our baggage from past relationships and past church hurt. I can tell you right now, as I've talked to people in this church, past church hurt is riddling so many people in this church. We carry it with us in every conversation, and you don't know it exists because you don't even know it's there. But it's evident. It's so obvious. Death is us handing over our marriages, our wives, our husbands, our kids, our jobs, our finances, our stubbornness to submit to the word of God, and our unwillingness to just love others as Christ loved us. Look, that personality trait that, think, that you think makes you funny, you know what it really is? It just makes you look like a big old jerk. We have to put it to death. We have to start asking ourselves, what are the things in my life that are still alive that I need to kill? We ask, as the psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Put me to the test and know my anxious thoughts. I'm convinced that while anxiety in the world is a very real thing, most of us deal with this crippling anxiety because deep down inside, we haven't put anything to the death. Because I wonder if the problem, and I put this in quotation marks, with some people in the church, if we're being completely honest, we want the resurrection and the lifeblood of Jesus Christ, but we don't want the death. We don't want to die. We want him to accept us exactly for who we are, and that's it. We want all the benefits of Jesus, but we want, don't want any of the things that comes with it. 
Oh, how I wish at 18 years old I had the wisdom and the foresight to see the depths of my heart and start to kill the things that almost ruined my marriage. I wish. But I needed this thing that I call the gutter moment. I needed to be brought to a place where I had nothing left but Jesus. Because it was in that moment, well, well, I got nothing left. If I keep doing this thing that I keep doing, I'm just gonna get worse. All I have is Jesus. And if I'm being completely honest with you, I stand before you right now fearful of the things that exist deep inside of me that are just waiting to come out that I don't know is there. The, the things that fester like a, like, a, like a fungus that lives inside of a tree that's riding it from the inside out. Like a disease. And it's just waiting for that one opportunity to just poof, come alive. So again, I ask, what are the things in your life, in my life, that are still alive, that we're aware of at least, that we have to put to death? Because the New Testament is full of verse after verse after verse after verse about crucifying yourself, about denial of self-wants and interests, putting things to the death of your flesh. It's, it's a huge theme, starting from here, straight through the end of Revelation. There were so many references to this that I had to stop and just say, you know what, my encouragement to you is just go finish your Bible. Because if you don't begin to put it, I mean, just think about it this way, right? Go, re, when you're reading your Bible, go ask, when we get to heaven, we can do this. Um, go ask Peter, Paul, Moses, Abraham. Certainly ask Adam. Ask David. Ask Saul. Ask Solomon. What were their gutter moments like? Because the Bible is full of person after person after person after person who had a relationship with God, didn't put things to the death, and ended up in the gutter. You ain't special. You're gonna have a gutter moment too. And here's the concern, here's the worry, right? If you and me don't begin to put things to death that live underneath and we just put them aside and act like they don't exist, we are ticking time bombs just waiting to explode. And there is a pile, a pile of dead bodies behind us, of people who exploded and they didn't make it out alive. Because you know what they're doing now? They've, 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 they, they didn't fix the, they, they didn't fix. They didn't begin to work on these things. They exploded and what they didn't do is come to Jesus and say, okay, God, fix me. What they did is they blamed the faith. They blamed the church. They blamed whoever hurt them. They blamed the word of God. They said Jesus isn't really real. And they started then to develop a whole system of thought and ideas around that thing that exploded in their life and they blamed everybody but themselves. So my warning here today is don't be like them. Begin to put to death the things that are living there underneath before you explode. Because my, 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 my assumption is that pile of dead bodies, if the common denominator between them all is they came to Jesus for the salvation and not the death. And if they're really being honest, if you were to break down their issue with the church, it all boils down to something that they just didn't want to deal with. And they just blame it on God. 
So that's the first point that I wanted to make in the sermon. Uh, we're going to go into number two. The first thing was death is necessary. Number two, Jesus was not calling the disciples for their own personal glorification or gratification. Jesus said, for though, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What good is it? Because later in Luke chapter 12, just a few chapters later, we get this parable of the rich fool. Not the rich young ruler. That's the guy who didn't want to give up all that he had for Jesus. This is the rich fool. There's a parable. And in this parable, there's a rich man who has all this great wealth and possessions. And his solution to having so much great wealth and possession is he had no room for them in his current barn, so he builds a bigger barn to hold all of his stuff. You know, because he's got so much great wealth in his savings account, he needs to move all of that now to a, a, you know, a high-yield savings account that's get better interest, or a Roth IRA, or something that increases his wealth exponentially without him having to do anything. And Jesus says to him, and, but God says, Fool, you fool. The night, this very night, your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, the things you're storing, whose will they be? Because an underlying current through the American culture right now, and this has been existed for two, three hundred years at this point, but it's, it's, been, it's been renamed a bit. It's called the American Gospel. And what it says is this, that what God wants most for you is a comfortable life. That you need to have many barns full of a bunch of stuff you neither need or probably never use. And it's linked very closely to the prosperity gospel that we see in churches. You know, Jeremiah 29, 11, God has a plan for you and it's for, it's for wealth and riches and glory. And I prefer the American gospel term over prosperity gospel because right now the prosperity gospel is very easy to identify. It says, if I give $100, I'm going to get $1,000 from God. If I hand over my rent check to this guy on television, he's going to actually mail me this handkerchief that he prayed over and it's going to heal me. And to most of us who are, you know, clear of thought, we go, that's insanity. Who would do such a thing? but it happens all the time. And so I prefer the American gospel over the prosperity gospel because one, the, one, the prosperity gospel is that like self-help, like you're really just a good person. Jesus chose you because you're a good person. Um, if you just think positive thoughts about your life, things will be better. It's the self-affirmation, but no Jesus gospel. That's what that is. But the American gospel is more closely linked to the American dream. The one that says you need to get married, own a home, have a bunch of kids, have a couple cars, and a nice lawn, and your life will be seen as good. Now, I have those things. I listed those for a reason, right? I have a house. I have a wife. I have three kids. I've got a couple cars, and I love my lawn. Uh, dogs. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> but baked into the American culture is this thing. Go read the Declaration of Independence. It literally says there's an inalienable right 
betrothed, well, not, actually it's not betrothed, but it's endowed to us by the creator and it's your right to pursue happiness. Friends, it's a false gospel that is being preached to our nation day in, day out. Listen, I'm not saying that having those things and having a comfortable life is bad or a sin. That's not what I'm saying because that would mean I'm in sin. I live a comfortable life. I do. My kids want literally for nothing. It's almost like a problem. I got to like take some things away from them so they live a little bit uncomfortable. I I make the joke that I didn't want to get an RV or a travel trailer because we love to camp. Because the one time my kids are really, really uncomfortable is when we're camping in a tent in Montana when it's like 30 degrees outside and they're cold and we're sleeping on the ground. Like that to me is like them experiencing some level of uncomfortableness. And then we go get home and we buy a trailer. So So it's not a sin to have these things. But why is it then a false gospel? It's not a sin. Why can't I have these things? Okay, so why? Why is it a false gospel? It's because it has convinced us that by having those things, God is pleased with you and he's blessed you over the people who don't have those things. That the poor man on the street is less loved by God because he doesn't have those things. And if you don't have those things and you see other people who do, what you need to do is get back in church and tithe more and then maybe you'll get a good career and you'll be able to afford those things. It creates a theology that says because I have wife, kids, a good home, a 401k, a Roth IRA, a college savings account for all of my kids, I have health and wealth. That means God loves me and has blessed me. And God is saying, no, you rich fool. Your soul is required of you this night, and what good is it of all this stuff that you have? What will you take with you? Jesus says, look, what good is it a man for gaining the whole world if he forfeits himself? So we really need to ask ourselves, are we Christians? Do we follow Jesus because we love him? Because he's transformed our lives, our very souls? Or do we really just love the benefits that we get from being a Christian? Are we here for the resurrection, but not the death? So I ask again, what have we forfeited? What is something that the Lord is asking you to give up that you refuse to relinquish? And I'm not necessarily talking about sin, while that sin can apply here. I'm thinking more like your career or the pursuit of a career. That the Lord is saying, nope, that's not what I have for you. And you just... I'm just pushing ahead. Every wall you hit, everything that tells you to stop, you're like, no, I'm powering through. Maybe you're supposed to be doing something for the Lord right now, which would mean forfeiting the kingdom that you've been personally building for yourself for the last 10, 20, 30 years. That place of honor, respect, the title, that thing that, you call, that, that people call you and it puffs up your chest and that pride deep inside of you. This is a toughie one. This one's a toughie. Uh, maybe it's time to stop using I'm in a season of rest as an excuse not to move. Look, if you've been sitting on the couch for two, three, and four years without moving, that's not rest. That's laziness. That's slothfulness. 
Jesus warns us, if we aren't willing to forfeit our lives, our schedules, uh, the things that we hold so dear, man, we're just going to end up forfeiting our souls. And that brings us to another question. Or potentially a problem, depending on who you are. Because some of you may be thinking, um, I'm saved by faith, man. Uh, this works thing you're telling me I have to give up and do? Uh-uh. I'm saved by justification alone, by faith. Okay? Like, I get that. So what we're going to do, we're going to spend just a moment talking about how faith and works work together. Because what I don't want us to do is confuse justification and sanctification. Okay? Because justification is us receiving the lifeblood of Jesus Christ in, as payment in place of the wrath of God. That's justification. Nothing about you can achieve that. It was only through Christ alone. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's no arguing this fact. But sanctification is the process of making or declaring something holy. So that is the process that we live day in, day out of looking and becoming more like Jesus. It's a process. 2 Timothy 2.21 Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work, who cleanses himself of what is dishonorable. That's sanctification. So how does this faith and works work together? So we're going to go to James chapter 2. It's probably one of the more, it's probably the definitive scripture verses when it comes to faith and works, and it's how they work together. So we're going to pick up in verse 14. And then now James, for those who maybe didn't grow up in the church and don't know how this works, James was the brother of Jesus. So I do kind of like trust James when it comes to what he felt Jesus said and did in his life. It says this in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have good works or does not have works? Can that faith save him? Uh-oh. Got a problem. Because if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, brother, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There's that death thing that we don't like to talk about. What does that remind you of? Doesn't Jesus tell people to go away from me because when I was naked and poor, you didn't either feed me or clothe me? And they're like, what do you mean, Jesus? We never saw you naked or poor. And he's like, yeah, but every single time you walked past one of my kids who was naked and poor and you didn't clothe them, so you did to me. So go away from me. I never knew you. That's what James is saying, he's jiving off of here. Pick up in verse 18, he says, but someone will say, because there's always that one guy in the room, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even then demons believe and shudder. Y'all, just believing that Jesus existed is not gonna be enough because even the demons believe that. 
Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So if anybody's new to church and you haven't read your entire Bible yet, go back to Genesis, start in chapter 10, that's the beginning of, the, of Abraham, and read your, you know, the subsequent chapters and they'll tell you the story of Abraham and what he's talking about here. I don't have time to break that down today. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he was also called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Put a pin in that one, because that could really confuse you. Because I just said, you're justified by Christ alone. James says, nope, that's not actually how it fully works, justified by works and not by faith alone. So we'll come back to that. Verse 25, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out with another way? Again, if you haven't read the book of Joshua, go back and read the first few chapters there, and you'll get the story of the Jericho and the, and the prostitute Rahab. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James, the brother of Jesus, says twice that without works, your faith is dead. And where do we think James, the brother of Jesus, got that idea? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 3.10, he says, if a tree that doesn't bear fruit, you know what you should do with it? You should fertilize it so it grows fruit. You should bring another tree over to it so you can cross-pollinate so it can grow fruit. Is that what Jesus said? Nope. Cut it down and throw it into the fire. It's no good. So James says, even though you were justified by your works, well, I'm sorry, James even says here, we're going to go back to that verse there, that you were justified by your works and not by faith alone. Let's be clear. If you just read that one scripture alone, you're going to be lost. That's why we don't read single scriptures at this church. He's not saying that you can save yourself. To believe that would be to ignore all all the rest of scripture that says you are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, Romans 3, 20 through 24, Romans 5, 8, Romans 11, 6, Hebrews 4, 16, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, all make that point. We are saved by grace through faith, and that grace is a gift from God. Can't argue that point. But what James is saying is that if you are relying on your faith and the rest of your life is void of anything that looks like good works, your faith is dead. And you're entering into that very uncomfortable space where Jesus says you're forfeiting your soul. And this brings me to my third and final point, that there is a cost to following Jesus. Because so I hate to tell you this, but you're going to have to die and forfeit your soul if you want to be a follower of Jesus. Because there's another prevalent false gospel being preached today in our church. It's making its way through. It's becoming very, very popular. It's almost hard to kind of hear it and tell what it is. I call it the love gospel. And it says this, God is love. It says God is love, and he loved Jesus, and Jesus loves me. Then all I need is love, because love eventually wins. That gospel pushes the idea that all we need is love, y'all. 
Just come to Christ with love, and if I love you and I love others, I don't need to change. I don't gotta repent. I don't have to do anything with my life. I don't have to have good works. I just love. Love is so good. There's no sacrifice needed. We don't need to submit our lives or enter a death that leads to life. All we need to do is love, and that's that. Problem here, there's a couple problems for several reasons. Number one, it sounds very enticing. Man, like, just all I gotta do is love and I get eternal salvation? That's, that's great. That's simple. Nice buttoned up and I don't have to do anything with my life. I can pursue anything I want in life as long as I love and believe Jesus exists. That's all I need. Very enticing. Number two, it's a very clever trap of Satan. Talk to any lawyer, and I'm not linking Satan with lawyer here, so I apologize here, but ask any lawyer, and they will tell you that the goal of arguing, and as someone who likes to argue, or used to, I'm trying to come, this one was something I'm putting to death, but um, as, the point of arguing isn't always to be right. It's to trap your opponent to a place where they don't have any way to respond. It backs them into a corner where they're like, wow, that was really clever what you just said, and I really don't have a comeback, so you win. And that's what this God is love gospel does. It backs us into a corner because what happens is anytime you respond, they say God is love, and you say, well, God is love, but all of a sudden now you don't sound very loving, and they got you. They like to quote 1 John 4, 7 through 21, which is the love chapter in in 1 John. John quotes or uses the term love 27 times in like 10 or 12 verses. 27 times. They love, the love gospel people love this chapter. But the problem is they don't keep reading 1 John. Because the very next chapter, chapter 5, it says this, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. So they want the love part, but they don't want to have to do the thing of following his commands. And there are a lot of Jesus' commands about love. Don't get me wrong. You, you read the New Testament and the Gospels, you get this very loving Jesus. I, I get that part. But while Jesus commands us to love, he also speaks of things like repentance, that we should be reconciled with others, that we should avoid lust, and sexual sin, that we should be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect, that we should seek the kingdom of God and not our own, that we should store up treasures in heaven and not on earth, that we should choose the narrow path and not the wide one. We need to forgive others. We need to honor our parents and avoid false prophets. Those are just a few of the commands of Jesus Christ. So what I'm really saying here is we should do a much better job of reading our Bibles before we make the claim that all we need is love. Because love is a great starting place. I am very much pro-love. I love love. Love is great. Nothing wrong with love. But to believe that the Christian life is void of self-sacrifice or cost or the need to change anything about your life is to reject the teachings of Jesus. And when we reject the teachings of Jesus, we are then now ashamed of his teachings. And Jesus says... For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be shamed when he comes in his glory in the glory of the Father. Y'all, there is a cost to following Jesus. It's a cost. We have to measure that cost. We have to go through the process of dying. We have to obey. That's a package deal. You don't get one without the other. So I'm closing here. 
Am I saying that God wants you to live this sulky, sad, just cumbersome, always walking around like Eeyore, oh, it's me. Just putting more stuff to death. I'm just cutting off my arms. I'm cutting off my ear. Oh, woe is me. I'm always sad. I'm the sad Christian. No, that is not what God is saying here. We should be so full of love that it actually annoys non-believers. Like, we should be the most loving people on the face of the earth. We should be really happy. Not but because what we have is because of who we have. Because here's the kicker. The love that John was talking about in 1 John, the one we just spoke about, is based on the love found within the gospel message. Why are these two things that I mentioned, the American gospel and this love gospel, why are they false gospels? Because this is what the true gospel says. And I want you to listen. If you've never heard this before, please listen. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news. This is the good news that we have for the world. This is the thing that we love. This is the thing that makes us happy, right? That Christ lived a life that we could not live. He died a death that we could not die, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. He defeated death by coming out of that tomb. And that for those who are in Christ Jesus, when we put our faith in him, we are new creations. We've been set free. We've been set free from the need to satisfy the wrath of God. We've been set free from having to earn his love or his acceptance. We're free from the bondage that sin holds on our lives. There's no more sacrifices. We don't have to follow the laws. For we are now the temple. The Bible says we are the temple of the living God, where heaven and earth meet. And for eternity, our identity is found in the completed work of Jesus Christ. That is the true gospel. And if anybody tells you a gospel that isn't that, they are a false prophet, they are a false teacher, and Paul says they should be accursed, to be cast out. And those messages that are making its way through our American society are leading people to a path of destruction. So I think it's a good way to maybe close out this sermon with just a handful of questions. One I've already asked, but I'll just reaffirm them. What are we putting, I'm sorry, what are we keeping alive that needs to be put to death? What are the things that we keep dragging with us that every time we put to death and they start to die, we grab that thing and start bring it to life. And we keep holding on to it and holding on to it and holding on to it because secretly we don't want to actually let it go. We like it. We like that thing. What's that thing that we refuse to forfeit? And have we counted the cost of following Jesus? And have we listened to a false gospel and let it start to drag us away from the true message of Jesus Christ? Because I tell you this, friends, if I could go back 30 years, nope, that's wrong, 20 years, don't want to overage myself here. If I could go back 20 years and tell that 18-year-old kid, start working on lust, start working on your identity, start working on how you see yourself, because in 10 years, you're going to lose it all. I would, but only because it would save the pain that I caused others. That's the only reason, because I can tell you this, there was beauty found in my gutter. Because for the first time in my life, I was 28 years old, I could see Jesus. For the first time, I got to see the cross and say, wow, 
I get it now. I get what he did for me. All that other stuff, I don't want it no more. Because when you get Jesus and you put to death the things that you want and you finally see him for who he is, you get Jesus and all that other stuff doesn't matter. Career, if he asked you to give him your career, you're like, yeah, sure. Why? Because I get Jesus. If I have to give up something of my personality that I like, but I had to give it up, that's not a problem, because I get Jesus. And the reason why we don't give it up is we don't really understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's where we're off. Jesus says, look, look, if you give up your career, if you give up your stress and anxiety, fear, your health, your family, now you get to walk in the freedom of me. Now you get to know what that that life, that abundant life that I was talking about, now you get to walk it out and experience it. Why do you think Jesus said, come to me all who are heavy, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? Why would he say that? Because he knows that's where true freedom is because we are being brought from death to life. So come to Jesus. Don't avoid the death, y'all. The death is where the good stuff is. So don't shy away from it. Don't be afraid to give up that thing, because that's where life is. That's where Jesus is. So come, come, enter into a new life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.